0: My name is Kristen, if I haven't had the chance to meet you. I'm on the leadership team here at Novation, and I have the privilege of getting to share with you this morning. Um, It's good to be back together after last Sunday. How many of you enjoyed being hunkered down during the the blizzard? Not like that many. Like, some hands are up, but I can't see a ton. How many people are, like, over it? A lot more. Well, you're probably going to be mad at me because I was in Florida during the blizzard. (laughs) I was supposed to come home last Sunday. I went on a trip with my sisters and it was like, I think it was Friday afternoon and I'm sitting on the beach and my text message comes through Southwest. was like, hey, your flight's canceled. And I was like, oh, sad. (laughs) So everybody's posting their pictures of like their patio furniture with like two feet of snow. And I was sending Scott Texts from the beach, pictures of me with my Bible and my notebook working on the message in the sun. It was great, actually. But anyway, I'm really glad to be back together today. It's good to be together. We need one another. Um, we have been in a series called Kingdom Come since the new year, and we've just been working our way through the book of Luke, looking at the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and, and applying it to our own lives. And we're going to continue in that series this morning. I've uh, titled today's series or message, Navigating Your Darkest Hour. We are going to be looking at the passage of Scripture where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is arrested. But before we read it, I just kind of want to put it into context for you. So it's Thursday during the week, right? It's Thursday before Passover, and Jesus on this Thursday had told the disciples, hey, I want you to go. There's a room that's going to be set up for us. This is where we're going to have dinner tonight. I want you to go get it ready. So they do, and then Jesus comes, and the twelve disciples they're in this this upper room, and the first thing that Jesus does, according to the Gospel of John, is he washes the disciples' feet. He takes off his robe, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet, and tells them, "Look, I'm I am I am showing you how to love each other, how to serve each other in humility." And then they eat supper together. They gather around the table, and there's bread and there's wine and Jesus tells them, I'm not going to eat again until the kingdom of God has been fulfilled. And then he tells them, he institutes the Last Supper, which we still celebrate today. Every, every month when we take communion as a church family, we're doing what Jesus told the disciples to do. Jesus told the disciples, look, when you break bread, I want you to remember my body that's going to be broken for you. And when you drink this wine, I want you to remember my blood that's going to be poured out for you, that's going to usher in the new covenant. And then he kind of tells the disciples, like, the last important things that he wants to say to them before he goes to the cross. And then he prays for the disciples, and he prays for us, for all the future believers. And that, so that's where we're kind of picking up. Now, before um, Jesus started to pray for the disciples, but after dinner, after they had eaten, Judas takes off. Jesus knows that Judas has already agreed to betray him. Judas was one of the disciples, and he made a deal with the Jewish leaders, like, hey, I'm going to deliver Jesus to you, and they agreed to pay him for his betrayal. So Judas leaves. Jesus knows where he's gone and what he's gone to do. And then we pick up in Luke 22, verse 39 through 46. It says, Then, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. Now, what we see in the garden is the humanity of Jesus. Jesus came into this world. Our almighty sovereign God came into this world as 100%... God, but also 100% human, like us. So we're seeing his humanity, his real human feelings and fears, his real human emotions. I think it's really interesting that Luke, who was a physician, he was a doctor, notes the physical manifestation of the agony of spirit that Jesus was in. He, sa- he tells us that it was like great uh, drops of blood. His sweat was like great drops of blood. And this is actually a real medical condition. Under great duress, um, people can actually have little blood vessels in their skin break and the blood gets into the sweat glands and you literally sweat blood. It's rare because you have to be under extreme duress to experience this. But that's what Luke notes. That's how agonized Jesus was. And I think that begs the first question of why was Jesus in such agony of spirit? It's not because he was caught off guard. Jesus spent many, many times in his ministry, many moments in his ministry, telling the disciples what was going to happen. He knew from the very beginning that his earthly life and ministry ended at the cross. So he wasn't caught off guard by what was about to happen So where was the agony coming from? It wasn't only the physical pain that he was going to experience, although I'm sure that that was part of it, but what Jesus was actually doing, what we're seeing in the garden, is really a window into what his whole life had been. His life was marked by suffering, by sorrow, by trials, by tribulation, because Jesus was pressing in to our brokenness. He had to become like us, but perfectly, in order to undo what Adam had begun, what sin had done to our human condition. He had to fully enter into that brokenness, and that is the agony of spirit spirit that Jesus is facing. In uh, Romans 5, 17 through 19, Paul tells us, that, tells us this, he says, For if, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus was in agony as he prepared to undo the sin of Adam. Jesus was also in agony because he was preparing to face God's emphatic no, that sin was not going to have the final say, sin was going to be judged and was going to be nailed to the cross because God loves his good creation. If you go back to Genesis, we see this pattern where God creates, and what does he say? God created, and it was good. God created, and it was good. Over and over and over, until we get to man. God creates man, and what does he say? It was very good. His very good creation. God loved us so much that his judgment of sin was his emphatic no, that sin would not have the final say. His judgment of sin was his yes to us. What Jesus was about to endure was God's way of saying yes to us. In 1 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For now, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Jesus was preparing to bring us back into his relationship with the Father. We are included in that. And the agony and the preparation, the the pushing in of Jesus into our brokenness was our way back into God's family where we belong. Ephesians 1.5 says God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It was the pleasure of the triune God to bring us back in relationship with him the same relationship that jesus has with father we have with the father and this is the way that was made for us to be included in that relationship so that is why jesus is agonizing in the garden but i think we ask another question as well i think the next question that we ask is well what can we learn from jesus about navigating our own darkest hours I think there's four different things that we see in this passage and in the life of Jesus that can inform us when we face our own Garden of Gethsemane. The first thing that we see Jesus do throughout his entire life is he prepared for this moment. He prepared for this moment. We need to prepare as well. Right now, you might not be in a garden moment. You might not be in a season of crisis. But because we're still living in a broken world. Jesus has the final victory. He's already won the final victory, but he hasn't returned yet to set everything right. We're living in the in-between. And so because of that, we know that there's going to be moments, garden moments for each of us, probably more than one in our lifetime. Jesus tells us this in John 16, 33. He's talking to his disciples. This is right before he goes to the garden. He's talking to his disciples and he's actually talking about his own suffering. And he tells them in John 16:33, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. If Jesus tells us to prepare for many trials and sorrows, we need to do it. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare for our own Garden of Gethsemane? Well, I can tell you what I see Jesus doing in his life and what we can learn from it. We can prepare for our own Gethsemane through prayer. In Luke 5.16, we're told that Jesus withdrew frequently to the wilderness to pray. He got by himself to pray. If the Messiah needs to prioritize prayer, we need to prioritize prayer. I think there's a tendency, I know this is true in my own life sometimes, of just kind of getting in a, a rhythm and I'm just rolling when things are going good. And it's easy to let my prayer life maybe take a little bit of a back seat. But then when when crisis happens, when something's going on that's outside of my control, I press into prayer. But we need to have a habit of prayer. If Jesus did it, we need to do it too. The second way we can prepare for our own Gethsemane is spending time in the Scriptures. We need to be in the Bible. We need to know what it says. Again, Jesus spent time in the Scriptures God Almighty spent time in the scriptures. We need to be in the scriptures as well. In Luke 2, it's really kind of the only snapshot we get into the life of Jesus as a young boy and as a baby even. And uh, several different times in Luke chapter 2, we read that Jesus grew in wisdom, in his understanding of the scriptures. In um, the latter part of Luke 2, Jesus' family goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival and then they're headed back home to Nazareth and they get there and they're like is Jesus with you? Well no, is he with you? Mary and Joseph are probably freaking out texting all their friends. Well, I guess not texting, but you know, whatever the ancient texting string looked like, that's what they were doing. And end up going back to back to Jerusalem and they find Jesus and where is he? He's in the temple. He's looking at the scriptures. He's debating the scriptures. The teachers are amazed at his understanding. When Jesus was taken out into the wilderness and tempted by the devil, every temptation he responded to was scripture. He quoted throughout his ministry, he quoted the Old Testament, the Psalms, the prophets. Jesus knew the scriptures. We need to spend time in the scriptures now, even when we're not in crisis, so that when crisis hits, we're able to navigate our crisis with a a worldview that's biblical, that's based on the scriptures. And then thirdly, we prepare for our own Gethsemane through relational experience with God. I think it's very possible to spend time in prayer and spend time in the scriptures, but have kind of a dry head knowledge and not a deep relational connection with God. In John uh, chapter 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath day. And he tells the man, like, take up your pallet, go home. And the Jewish leaders didn't like that. And so they ended up kind of getting into a debate with Jesus about whether or not he should have been healing this man on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says something really interesting to the leaders in John 5:19. Uh, he says, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. When I was reading that verse, I was thinking about this picture that I have. Um, my husband, Joel, was mowing our backyard, this was like a long time ago, 12 years ago maybe, and our son Bryson was two years old at the time, and Joel's mowing the lawn, and he's got his hat on backwards and his sunglasses on, he's pushing the lawnmower, and coming trotting behind him comes little tiny Bryson with his hat on backwards and his sunglasses on, pushing his toy lawnmower, right? Adorable. But the thing is, Bryson has a relationship with his dad, and he was learning how to be a man in the world, by doing what his dad was doing. And it's cute and simple, but it's also what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is doing what the Father is doing. There is a relational experience there that's available to us too. It's more than just head knowledge, but it's actually using our gifts. It's stepping out in faith. It's operating within the body that Jesus has given us so that we come to know him, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, in a relationship. The second thing that Jesus does that we see in this passage of Scripture is he calls up his people. Jesus calls on his people. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see that he loved people so well. He was so relational. He was constantly ministering to the crowds, loving them, healing them, teaching them. But he was also limited as a human, right? We we aren't built for massive numbers of deep relationships and we see that in the life of Jesus as well. He had smaller groups of disciples. In Luke, I think it's Luke 10, Jesus sends out 70 disciples and tells them to you know, go out and do ministry. So we can assume he had a little bit of a closer connection with the 70. And then of course we see the 12. Jesus called these 12 guys that he did life with. They walked with him day in and day out. They did ministry with him. And then even beyond that, Jesus had the three, Peter, James, and John, over and over in the scriptures, we see Jesus pull these three men. They were there on the, at the Transfiguration in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark, and their account of the garden. Uh, Jesus actually asked the three of them to come even a little further into the garden with him, and then he went away to pray. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes, verse uh, chapter four, verse nine through twelve, that I think really captures our need for one another. It says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We are built relationship. We're created in God's image, and God is a relational God. He's in constant fellowship and unity. The Father, Son, and Spirit are in constant fellowship and unity with one another, and we're created in their image. We're created in the image of God. We need one another. I think today, especially with social media, we can kind of have a false sense of community. You might have a thousand friends on Facebook, but how many of those friends are going to show up when the crisis hits? How many of those friends are going to be with you in your garden of Gethsemane when you walk through that? My encouragement, if if you are in a place right now where you're like, man, I just don't have those kinds of deep relationships, my encouragement to you is two things. One, be that kind of friend. Start being the kind of friend that you want. And then two is take some initiative. Sometimes we sit back and we wait and hope that will somehow end up with like a a community, a strong community. Here at Novation, we're, we're a very relational church and we prioritize community. We have so many opportunities for you to get connected with other people, other believers in the church. So come to a connection event. Come to the men's breakfast or the women's breakfast. Join a home group. You heard this morning as Scott and Patty were talking about their home group and the things that they've experienced, the way that they've loved each other and prayed for each other and encouraged each other, that happens in every one of our home groups. If you're not already in a home group, talk to Craig and Stacy. Would you guys just wave real quick? They're in charge of our, our home group ministry here at Novation, and they would love to help you get connected. We really need one another. The third thing that we see in this passage that Jesus did in his own darkest hour is he prayed. Jesus went away, and he began to pray. I think we see three marks of authentic prayer in the way that Jesus came to the Father, in his humanity, in his agony. The first thing that we see is his prayer was intimate. In Mark 14.36, this is Mark's account of the garden, Jesus cries out, Abba! which is a relational, intimate term for daddy, papa. He begins his prayer from a place of relationship, from a place of complete trust in the Father. We need to begin with intimacy. The next thing that we see is Jesus was honest in his prayer. Jesus said, Father, if there's any way for this cup of suffering to pass from me, can we do that? Like this doesn't this isn't good. I don't want to do this. And I think for me when I go through my own hard times, my own crisis seasons, sometimes I am actually a little bit hesitant to pray like that. I think part of it is is maybe a fear of like, well, am I not walking in faith if I ask God to take this hard thing and to intervene? Am I not walking in faith? Would it be more spiritual for me to just like suffer through the suffering without being honest with god which is nonsense because god knows my heart already of course he knows when my deep longing is god please intervene please change this situation but then i think the other side of that too is like maybe a little bit of fear for me at least of what if i pray this big prayer and god doesn't answer what what does that mean for me for my faith what does that what does that mean But Jesus sets us such a beautiful example here of just being really honest in his prayer, just asking God, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, please let it be. And then thirdly, his prayer is persistent. In the other two synoptic gospels in Matthew and Mark, we see that Jesus didn't just pray this prayer once. He prayed it three different times. He went away and he began to pray and then he came back. And found the disciples sleeping and engaged with them. And he went away a second time and came back to the disciples. And then he went away a third time. He was persistent in prayer. So we need to pattern our prayer in our own Garden of Gethsemane the same way. Let's come to God with intimacy, with honesty, and with persistence. In 1 John 5, 14 through 15, it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Man, what a scripture filled with confidence. This morning, Brian shared about their own miracle, their own request, that not just them, but all of us collectively and people far beyond this room have been praying and asking God to intervene on behalf of Channing. And God did, and we celebrate that, and we recognize God as the miracle maker, as the healer. But I think what this verse draws up also is how many of you have prayed a prayer and God didn't answer the way that you asked him to? You don't need to raise your hands, but I think it's a collective experience. Like, everyone's hands went up. <laughs> I think it's a collective experience. There are times that we pray And God doesn't answer the way that we asked him to answer. In 2008, my sister-in-law, Joel's older sister and Matt's younger sister, was in a terrible car accident. And she was on life support for a week. And during that week, we prayed that God would heal her. We prayed that God would restore her and intervene. And God didn't. My sister-in-law passed away. And in the kind of aftermath of that, as Joel and I were were just wrestling through, God, this doesn't make sense. Like She has three little girls who who don't have a mom now, and we don't understand. God, we don't understand. I found so much hope in thinking about the disciples. Next week, Scott is going to talk about um, the cross and the crucifixion. So I'm jumping ahead just a little bit, but I want you to think about the disciples. They put They'd followed Jesus for his entire ministry. They'd been living with him day in and day out. They thought he was going to, to restore Israel and remove the Roman rule from Israel. They thought this, they, they believed that he was the Messiah. And then Jesus died. He was in a tomb, a stone rolled over the tomb. And the scriptures tell us that the disciples were hiding in a locked room because they were afraid the scriptures tell us that they were weeping and they were grieving. And the reason is because the disciples at that moment, they didn't know that Sunday morning was coming. They didn't realize that the resurrection was just around the corner. All that they knew is that all their hope was in a tomb, dead. That everything that they believed in and hoped for was gone. They had to have been discouraged and disillusioned and disheartened. They had to have just been Confused and so broken because they didn't know that Sunday morning was coming. So, when I think about the times that I pray a prayer that God doesn't answer the way I ask Him to answer, I think about the disciples in the room. And I remember that just in the same way that Sunday morning was coming for the disciples, we sung about it this morning. God has promised that He's going to work everything together for our good and for his glory, even when I don't see it, even when I don't understand what he's doing behind the scenes. I have the confidence of the resurrection morning that he's doing the same thing in my own garden, that he's gonna do the same thing with my unanswered prayers. Tim Keller has a book on prayer and he sums this up beautifully in this quote. He said, we can be sure that our prayers are answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God knows. So when you are walking through your own garden moment, when you're asking God to intervene and he doesn't show up the way you asked him to, hold on to that. Remember the disciples on Good Friday? We call it good today because we we have the ability to look back and see the resurrection Sunday. But do you think the disciples called that Good Friday? No, no. They didn't call that Good Friday, but good indeed it is because it changed the course of everything, of all eternity. Hold on to that in those garden moments where God doesn't answer the way that you asked him to. I'm so thankful for Jesus's prayer. Jesus prayed a prayer that God didn't answer the way that he asked him to. And then what did Jesus do with that? The fourth thing is he persevered. When When Jesus knew, nope, the cross is the only way, he was obedient unto death. He persevered. He walked through that garden, that night of agony in the garden, and then he walked to the cross. And we know the story. We know how this story ends, right? We can take heart. When we persevere in our own gardens, we can take heart because Jesus made the way for us. Jesus has already done what we can do because of him. In his strength, we can persevere. In Romans 5, verse 3 through 5, it says, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Our confident hope of salvation will not be disappointed. No matter what gardens we walk through and this side of heaven, we will not be disappointed. Jesus has the final say and he has already won the victory for us. It's ours in Jesus. So as we get ready to close, what I want you to do, whether no matter where you're at right now, whether you're in a garden moment or you're looking back on a garden moment or you're just preparing your own heart for when your garden moment comes, what I want us to do is just openly lay before God whatever, whatever our struggles, our fears, our hurts, our disappointments, the prayers that maybe God didn't answer for you, the way you asked him to answer, and I want us to declare the truth of Romans 8, 35 through 39. I'm going to read these verses, but as I read them, I just want you to declare them and claim them as true in your own gardens, in your own lives. And then we're going to finish by together again singing, All Hail King Jesus, and just declaring that he has the victory. It's been won. Let's read these verses. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels can't, and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. God, this morning we exalt your name. We declare that you have the ultimate victory. And Jesus, when we walk through our own darkest hours, help us to hold on to you and to remember the example that you set for us and to remember that nothing can separate us from your love because of what you've done for us. We love you. Our desire is to magnify your name, to lift you high. And we're confident of our hope of salvation because of the cross, because of what you did. In Jesus' name, amen. with them and guide them. And Lord, just help us to be intentional with those relationships this week. Lord, I just pray that you would just guide us to people who would need to hear from you. In your name we pray.